Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and Dr. Dixon's here with me. Good afternoon, Casey. We're going to try a little bit of a curveball today on the podcast, so if you're listening or if you're watching on YouTube, if this one goes off the rails a little bit, we're trying something new. I don't have the answers to Dr. Dixon's questions today. This is going to be a variation on Monday Morning Quarterback. Dr. Dixon had a recent run of night shifts here in the county and took care of some really sick patients from our MCHD paramedics, and he decided he wanted to put me on the spot. So I guess now I'm on the spot. I'm going to put you on the spot with the first case, and then I'm going to let you Monday morning quarterback one of my other cases and see how you would have managed it. All right. Or do you want, which one do you want to do first? It, this one's your idea. Take it, take it however way you right. want to go. I'm it, totally giving up control here. So for all the people around <laughs> here in the office that call me a control freak, most of the time they're right, I'll, I'll admit. But today I'm, I'm just rolling with it. I'm easygoing, Dr. Patrick, today, which that's really not a thing. All right, let's start. It's not Monday, but let's start with Monday morning quarterback. So here's the case. It's one of our cases from the district. I'm trying to remember who the medic was. can't remember exactly who the medic was. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the history is a 50-ish woman uh, had fallen down the stairs at her house. So pretty good uh, distance. Um, it wasn't witnessed by anyone. The family heard some noise, and they, they found her at the bottom of the stairs. Um, uh Pre-hospital-wise, she arrives in in a C-collar, cervical collar. She's altered. Um, She had, uh, I can't remember her exact history, but she was on blood thinner, so she was a trauma alert. So she came in as a trauma alert. Uh, Her hemodynamics had been stable uh, in route, except for she had some marked uh, hypertension in the 180s, 190s systolic remainder of her oxygen status they had her well worked up they had her on end tidal capno all that was stable uh, she had a relatively normal blood sugar okay uh so my first kind of recess on my first uh look at her i saw her in the hallway on their stretcher uh she would arouse uh to voice she'd eye open and kind of look around then fall back to sleep she had incomprehensible words she would try to answer questions maybe, but she would track to me. Um, uh, her airway was intact, uh, she, breathing, circulation. I really couldn't get much of a disability neurologic disability exam because she wouldn't follow commands, but she would localize, localize pain okay. to that side. So I put her score. Actually, we were talking about that today, how GCS is inter-rater reliability. I kind of put her lower. I put her at an eight or nine. Actually, when you count it up, she's probably a 10-ish. So she's about a 10, uh, and so I say, yep, let's get her get her to a room. So we we're, we were super busy. We didn't have a room, so they're cleaning a room, and she does have a little bit. She has a little bit of vomitus, so she vomits outside a little bit, just a little bit, and she kind of spits, spits some out, and some sits in her, uh, on her lips. But she's sitting up. The medics have her at about 30 degrees. So we kind of sweep the rest of the vomitus out, and we're waiting for some other patient to be moved out of the room so we can move the room and, and do a proper secondary evaluation of her. So we get her in there. We do the secondary examination. She has a 
hematoma, abrasion to the back of the scalp. The remainder for examination is fairly unremarkable, other than the vitals remain the same. I put her on entitled cap. No, it's essentially the same. She's a little bit hypertensive, but otherwise, her neurologic examination throughout the secondary evaluation is about the same. She localizes, she groans and moans in a couple of words, but she really won't follow commands meaningfully. I think we repeated her blood sugar. That was still normalish. So take it from there, doctor. Next decision, she had one little vomitus that I swept out. She has no ongoing vomiting. Mental status changes on a blood thinner, has had a collapse or a fall, some type of fall, ended up at the bottom of a big flight of internal house steps. She has some noted head trauma. Intubate or not, doctor? Man. Or, or scan? This is a hard one. The answer is intubate and scan. I just don't know what order you decide to go with here. And this is, this is CE week here at MCHD, and we're talking about airway patency and protection. We've talked about this already on the podcast, so if you haven't listened to that episode, this is where GCS less than eight intubate and all the surrounding discussion over the past four or five years that, hey, GCS less than eight is really not terribly reliable for any single indicator for intubation. But if someone's mental status is depressed and they've got trauma and they're on anticoagulation, we have to be concerned for compressive lesion. We have to be concerned for worsening mental status for both loss of protection. I would argue she's probably not protecting her airway that well. If she lost it, I'm not going to gag her to find out. That's not in my practice pattern. But she could have. Just because she's greater than eight doesn't mean that she hasn't lost her reflexes. And these patients are so dynamic that odds are she's not going to wake up anytime soon. So I hate when I get asked these questions because I try to think about what I would do in reality and not what I would do when I answer the question. And so if someone had a GCS of 10 and they had a minimal amount of vomit and during the time that the EMS changeover happened to move in a room to reassessment vital signs on the hospital monitor, confirmed our access sites, repeated our blood sugar, that's probably in most cases, I would say best case, you've probably seen her now yourself for 15 minutes. I've been with her at least 15 minutes. We got the room clear pretty but I or recognize we all recognize she was urgent so we shooed this other person out got her on proper mining I had to go get a capno line and all the different accoutrement but yeah about 15 minutes and her mental status examination was essentially unchanged she had no further episodes of vomiting so for the test question piece of this I think I know what's going to happen here I also think I know what I would have done and the honest answer is if she was stable over that 20 minutes I would have called CT during that initial two to three minutes, said, hey, you need to get come bed. You need to come get the patient in hallway seven that's going in seven ASAP. Come get her now. I would have been greasing the skids for an emergent CT scan. Take everybody else off your list. This one's going to the top of the list ASAP, and I would have scanned her first. I would not have intubated her before scan. Which is exactly what happened. We called the scanner. I told them, clear whoever you have, get get done with them because we're a pretty busy place. It was a busy night. And I said, I'm going to be down in five minutes with this one. Now, that's, uh, the, that's the honest answer. Since you're asking me, I'm going to go ahead and innovate her before you take her to the CT scanner because <laughs> I think I know how this movie ends. Yeah, this is exactly how it ends, doctor. You uh, great minds think alike. So what happened? 
you know, I'm thinking about patency versus protection. The vomit bothered me. It, it did bother me, right? Or I wouldn't have, like, said, hey, clear that room. I need to get some suction ready. Uh, it bothered me, and maybe I thought about this case quite a bit afterward, and I thought, the vomit, should it have changed my mind? I don't know. But what, what reassured me is the, that 20 minutes. I had her that whole 20 minutes. The mental status was exactly the same. So we get her down to the scan, and to, to be honest, I, I was an overscanner here, right? At 50, she's not going to die from radiation. I had no idea what happened to her, so I did order CT head, neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis. I didn't figure out what's going on. I'm worried about the head the most, but I'm worried about everything. I had no idea what happened to this lady. So we get the first scan. I was like, okay, now we know, right? We have uh, some subarachnoid this and that scattered about, but we have a pretty – a decent-sized subdural uh, on a bunch of images, uh, and we got clearly have some midline shifts. So we got some. Now we have the subdural uh, seen on the CT scan from the from the monitoring room, uh, and now the patient is moving around a little bit more. It's harder to to kind of get the other scans. They do get the rest of the scans done, and she becomes when you now it's been. What does it take to do a pan scan like? couple of minutes, like three or four minutes, five minutes, we go back in and now her mental status is more agitated. So very agitated, not really using words anymore, more incomprehensible, agitated. I'm thinking, okay, now we have the lesion. She's getting worse. We're going to take her back. Let's get her unhooked, take her back and intubate her in the room. Uh, We get back to the room and she has a big vomitus. Has a big vomitus, has moved on her side, is able to be cleared, and really, I think, ultimately was managed just fine. She got more agitated. Uh, she did not require immediate sedation, uh, but we got everything. She would tolerate the monitoring. We got her suctioned out uh, and then just went through the process. We slowed the process down, DSI'd her, and that went fine. Uh, on the post-chest x-ray, we didn't see an infiltrate or an aspirate, uh, which is good. I mean, but potentially, I kind of thought about this case a lot, and I had a discussion with the neurosurgeon that uh, he thought the patient needed to be intubated earlier. And so I did a lot of thinking on this one and our patency versus protection. We've been talking about it really for the last, in case you put that deck together, a couple of months ago. So it's been on the radar. And so this case really kind of brought a lot of those principles home, right? What was, And the other thing I kind of beat myself up with is she was old. She's on anticoagulants. What is her anticipated clinical course? You know, she probably, what's the likelihood she's got a compressive lesion if she's not waking up? And that's where I answered the question as honestly as I could. But as you're telling me the story and I'm thinking through the lecture that we're giving this week, and if you listen to the podcast, the tenants of the podcast, there's no doubt what's going on. This, you've got a hematoma, you've got Xarelto or Eliquis or Coumadin. This is a this is an intracranial lesion. There's yeah, just there, no, there, there's there was just, nothing else to explain her. Like people who say, well, she could be drunk. Well, there was no suggestion of that, right? There's nothing in the history from the family or the story that suggested that there was some intoxicant or toxin or other cause. Yeah, the blood me, sugar was ruled out, things like that. Let me expand on that a, a bit for the listeners. What Dr. Dixon means is I don't always snap, intubate every altered person because sometimes it's things that reverse themselves quite quickly, like alcohol intoxication is the big one. So if this patient was 24 and they had been picked up 
at the local bar, they may have a subdural. It's also on the list. They're going to get scanned for me in just the same pattern, but I'm probably not going to look back at myself and kick myself if I don't intubate them off the bat because 199 of those in a row are elevated ethanol levels and one out of 200 is a subdural. In this patient population, elderly, down a full flight of stairs, so you know you've got mechanism, you've got physical exam signs of, of trauma, trauma, and you've got that little vomit. Yeah, I think the rearview mirror tells me that I probably should intubate that patient too. I don't think that I would have. I want to ask you a question because this is one where I think the listeners may have different answers. I think experts could have different am- answers, and I don't really know that I know the answer, but thinking through your case, is all vomit the same? I mean, if somebody has a little dribble on yeah, the side of their was, mouth. I, I think I was overly reassured, right? I put those pieces together, and I thought about them, but I think I put too much weight on, I was just a little bit of vomitous in the stability for 20 minutes, and I put more weight on those clinical features than I did on what else is this going to be? What is her course going to be, right? She's already altered. She's got a bang in the head, and she's on Xarelto. This is probably not going to go well for her. She's going to go to the operating room. She's got a lesion. But I kind of looked at that stability, and I thought, I'm safe enough here not intubating her. I could take her over, get her done, bring her back, and if she's got a big lesion, I don't want to screw up the neuro exam for the neurosurgeon. There's lots of different things that come into play. Well, I think that leads to a really good question that I'm sure listeners have, and I'll play listener questions. What's the downside of just intubating her? And I could ask that as a, I feel as a skilled airway management clinician. The downside is you and I have both seen patients that seem to be relatively straightforward airways. Speaking of uh, my Twitter lurking skills, I saw a really interesting paper from Danish anesthesiologist today that looked at their ability to predict difficult airways. And just like all the literature before it, just another one to add to the pile, even the anesthesiologists who fancy themselves the expert of the airways, and most of the time are, they did a pretty poor job up front saying, is it going to be a difficult airway or not? So in this situation, that's why you don't want to snap intubate them because you don't want to do it unless you know it's necessary. The converse is, is big hematoma, GCS of 10, fell downstairs on Zarelto. That's quack with web feet and feathers and a yellow bill. That's just a duck. It sounds and looks and walks and talks like one. It's just going to be one. I want to address the second thing that you said in there that, you know, for the paramedics, I just want to get Dr. Dixon off the hook a little bit. Scanning the chest, C-spine, abdomen, pelvis, head in that patient was entirely the appropriate thing to do because when you tumble downstairs, you also hit your flank and your retroperitoneum and your left upper quadrant on stairs when you fall and things bleed easier. So the wrong thing to do would have been to only scan that patient's head, find the subdural, and miss the liver lesion that IR needed to intervene on in the process because she and very well could have had other intra-abdominal or intra-thoracic Agreed. Now, trauma and bleeding. So I, I think you have to look at the, you know, if someone is, and we talk about this all the time, right, that if someone is, is intoxicated, ejected out of their vehicle off the roadway at 60 miles an hour, what is, 
you know, what is the pretest probability that you are going to find something on that pan scan? It's pretty high, right? It's way higher than your risk of some radiation. And the so, worst, and the worst thing that can happen to the patient, thinking about second and third steps, even for the medics, is if we get a CT scan of that patient's head and the neck, and there's no neck fracture, and there's a big subdural, and she goes to the operating room for decompression, and she is bleeding in her pelvis. She's or got her. a bleeding spleen and drops her pressure, which worsens her brain injury. So that was kind of our thinking behind that. And it was one, it was unexplained. And yes, her vital signs, and her she examined normally, but the risk was just, to me, it was far too great not to scan so for those reasons Dr. Patrick just talked about. This is... I like this case. This is a good case because I think I would have done the same thing, and I think I would probably be kicking myself the same way you are today. And that's what we all do as clinicians, and this is where our knowledge base is built on our study and our textbook and our blogs and our podcasts, and we have to augment that with wisdom, and wisdom is experience plus reflection on it. So not only you didn't just take the case and say, well, I I managed that airway. You also went back and say, eh. Did I manage that airway perfectly? And it probably went fine, and there probably was no untoward outcome from that. Maybe some minimal aspiration that you couldn't see on the chest x-ray. It sounds like that's worst case. But I think you do it differently next time. I think I've learned something from the discussion. I think I'll probably be a little more aggressive. And we go in conservative versus you know, more aggressive sort of management patterns throughout our career, whether it's airway, whether it's EKG reading, you you name it. But that's the piece that gets you to wisdom is the reflection on the experience. You can have 20 years of experience and you don't look at yourself in the mirror at all. I would argue you probably don't have a whole lot of wisdom. So I I like this case. This goes perfectly with patency and protection. It does. It's it's bizarre. Wait till you get to case two. If you like this one, doctor, you are going to love case two. All right. All you listeners out there, I want someone to educate us on this. We're halfway. Let's go to case two. Case two. So case two is a great case. I'll give a shout out to our colleagues in the South. This was brought in uh, by my son service. The Harris County Emergency Corps did a great job with this patient. So she is a uh, 55 year oldish woman history of diabetes and hypertension, uh, the family called for altered mental status. The makes get there and assess her. She's got a little bit of a supernormal blood sugar, uh, but on their assessment, they, they really can't do a proper stroke screening exam because she's altered, but they pick up that she is moving her left and not her right, and she's completely has right-sided neglect. So very good clinical evaluation. And they recognize immediately that this is high risk. The patient was previously well, last known well. Uh, this is another one. This one came in right after that one. It's probably 4.30 in the morning now. Um, the, the place is full. I'll set the scene. The department is full. It's super busy. This other case we had talked about had been intubated and gone to the operating room maybe 30 minutes earlier. This woman comes in. Uh, the medics, her initial blood pressure was extraordinarily high, 240s over, you know, 150s or 60s. It was being addressed by a cardine drip by the, that the medics had put on, and it, they had already controlled it down. It was coming down. It was trending down. It was in 240s to like 180s, 190s. Definitely got us. They were very astute. They got us in the TPA and the endovascular window. Remember, that's 185 over 110. You got to get them less than that to be able to 
keep them eligible for TPA and uh, endovascular care. So she comes in, great job by the medics, great diagnostics, great therapeutics. They pre-alert, everything went great. We get her there. Her examination for the medics, my exam and the resident exam is consistent with that. She has a very dense uh, left, I'm sorry, right hemiplegia. She has right-sided neglect, um, and she's aphasic, essentially. Um, So very, very sick lady. Uh, I think her stroke score was 25-ish, 24, it was quite high, very high. I was going to say 27, but that's high. The the, the stroke scale is very convoluted. It's like 16 items and 40 points, but, yeah, you get to the 20s, you're pretty disabled. So she had a big lesion. Um, we, We had no family there. We went over the exclusionary criteria. We searched her old records. The medics didn't report any anticoagulant loose or, or any contraindications. I made the decision to administer TPA this lady. She was still within the window. We went and got a CAT scan. It was negative. The initial one was negative. We did a CTA head and neck. That was pending. So I went ahead and started TPA. Uh, and family came in. I updated them. We all agreed with the care. So I brought the family member into the room and was talking with her, and she was tuned up, ready to go to endovascular. I was really suspicious of an endovascular lesion. The system worked great. The radiologist called me right at that time, a little bit after we got back from scan, says, hey, this lady has a very uh, big M1 lesion on her left, left side. And so I said, great. I go back in, recheck the patient. She's doing perfectly fine. I mean, She's still, same examination, still big right side deficits. Uh, The daughter is there, but she looks great. The carding drip is still at like five milligrams an hour. She's been rock steady the entire now 30 minutes of her course. The TPA started. She's been rock solid right at 170-ish systolic. So blood pressures had not been variable, uh, had been tuned in. And so I felt like her physiology, I had her on Capno, everything looked good, right? Looks great. So I walk out of the room and maybe I talk with endovascular and they say, great, start the lab, start the, let's call on the crew. It's now probably 440, we call on the crew and the nurse calls me back to the room, says, you got to come in here and look at this patient. So I walk back in the room. The patient is now completely diaphoretic. She was kind of a little bit, you know, as, as folks with strokes, right? They're, if, if they're not swelling, they have recognition of how disabled they are. This is very upsetting when you cannot speak, you cannot move your side. So she had been moving around and kind of moaning and groaning and um, because she couldn't communicate. So I had her daughter there to, to settle her down, but now it's different. And she was calming her mom. When I walk back in, now the patient is unresponsive. She's completely diaphoretic. And her blood pressure, I look up at the monitor, her blood pressure is 70, and her heart rate is 30s on the monitor. Look sinus on the monitor. So now the patient taking a drastic turn to the, for the worse. Hypotensive, bradycardic, go. Well, that's... And then I'll tell you what happened. That's a tough one. Um, it was a tough one, man. I thought immediately she bled in her head, but the the the, the bigger thing in order. So I was thinking, yeah, you oh turn, my God, she's hemorrhaged. So you I, got yeah, you got to turn the you got to turn did. the carding off first and foremost. 
you have to then start. I, I, I guess I'm going to start with the safety net. Start with what we would do, what what we would ask our medics to do, and that is we got to get them positioned and monitored, access. Assuming all those things are for the most part done, but we're going to have to, you know, we got to oxygenate and think about pre-oxygenating because she's going to she's going to get intubated one way or the other. We have to think about, you know, do we, I mean, if you're given TPA, you've probably got access. You've probably got oxygen available. I'd start with, a, you know, start with a face mask, probably move to a bag pretty quickly and think about NP and OP airways and, and make sure that we can, we can oxygenate. We're going to need to move as much as I hate to say it to um, some fluids and some, some push dose to augment blood pressure and make sure that we don't have hemodynamic collapse with, with our intubation. Um, so I would, in a situation where you've got some bradycardia, I would probably mix push dose epi, get some fluids on board, uh, you know, move towards getting those values where we need to get them. You and I don't operate in the world of hard stops in the exact same way as our paramedics do, but I operate pretty close to that. I'm not going to push ketamine and, and rocuronium if the pressure is low. I need I need to get it up above 70. So I would, I would get with the fluid bolus. I would get with some push dose epi. I would put you know, maxim, maximal oxygenation, maximal adjuncts, and go from there and plan to intubate. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty much what happened. So my initial impression was it kind of jumped out at me. Oh, my gosh, she's had a hemorrhage. She's, she's gotten the TPA. She's had a brain hemorrhage. Something is drastically. I, I quickly, you know, we're, we had most of the safety net on. And so I asked the nurse, did anything get changed? Did you get a medication? Did you change the cardine drip? Anything, nothing. So we turned off the cardine, we turned off the TPA, we started, uh, opened up some fluids on her. Uh, I chose, while we were mixing the push dose, I put pacer pads on her, had the resident physician uh, mix up a push dose, but it's lag time, right? The patient is actively dying. I thought she was going to arrest. Her mental status has changed. She's still breathing spontaneously. So I had, we put an on rebreather on her. Uh, she already had nasal prongs and tidal on her uh and we i put her on i opted to pace her i didn't do 12 i just looked at the monitor i put the pads on her uh, i paced her at i don't know i just turn it on and turn it up i don't i I don't parse hairs with milliamps here or there i turn it to 100 turn it on and i turn it to as, as much milliamps as it will go and the patient will tolerate and she did get a pulse capture with it her blood pressure came up with it. I never actually had to give her the push dose. It was mixed. So I had her on the pacer for a couple of minutes. She was optimized. Her oxygenation was had never faltered. It was, it was still meeting the hard stops. Her blood pressure met the hard stops. Um, and during that resuscitation, I actually, we had the push dose. Now we were ready. We had the push dose ready. And so I backed off the pacer and she was back in a sinus rhythm. So I actually backed the pacer down, and she was, her hemodynamics maintained, and now back in a regular sinus rhythm at, I don't know, 80 or 90, something like that. So we proceeded with the DSI procedure. That went fine. We took her down the scan. I fully expected to see a bleed. No bleed. How does that happen? Well, <laughs> I'm thinking, what happened? I was like, I'm with the resident, and I'm thinking, I've been thinking about this case. Uh, we had one of our experts, Brad Ward. He's a pretty good med researcher, lit researcher. I've t- talked to him and Chief Seek about this case, and I was like, 
anybody ever seen this before? Or did, we did a lit research. I was like, what? what is this, you know? Well, I'm going to insert disclaimer here. I'm not trying to be a jerk or to be uh, dismissive, but I think the answer here is obvious. This patient had a gigantic stroke, a gigantic M1 lesion that just progressed in the way that strokes progress. She had ischemia. There was probably swelling that was occurring during this time period, and she just went south. I, I wouldn't go any farther than that looking for an explanation. That's a massive, when you think about an NIH stroke scale of 25 to 30, that is a massive stroke. I know, I, I kind of thought about that too, but she had no edema, she had minimal, she had edema on her, but she had no shift on her scan, and then she, it was just odd, because when she paced Casey, I backed it off, and she was back hemodynamically stable, like it righted itself, and it, and when I looked at the monitor, now I didn't take time to do a 12 lead, she was actively dying, so I thought I would probably do the ABCs and the basic stuff before I did a 12 lead. I looked at the monitor, it had P waves, but it was so Brady down, it was probably, I, I thought it was for sure that the rate was the source of her shock. Well, I, and that plus the other, her, 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 regardless of what caused it to drop, fixing the rate fixed her shock state. For sure, but I'm going to go back to, I don't, you're not going to move me off my, off my <laughs> rock here. And you're the one, I'm going to quote you, and, you know, stroke and vascular disease is a dynamic process. And so it's not just the vascular insult and whatever the thromboembolic phenomenon was that was, you know, whatever the big clot up there that was in her M1, all the swelling happens behind that. And when you think about the amount of hemisphere that's affected by an M1 lesion, things are going to start pressing on the, on the midbrain in the pons and start swelling in the neighborhood of those things that control our autonomics. And so that's just a, that's a monster stroke. I, I think sometimes too, even folks like, like us that have practiced for a while, it's been a while since I've seen a stroke that big. That's a giant debilitating stroke. That, that they're, they're lethal. I, I don't know that there has to be an explanation beyond that was an enormous stroke. I don't think it has to be related to the cardine or related to the TPA. I've definitely seen complications with TPA. I surely have seen angioedema with TPA, which is thoroughly bizarre. And you turn it off and it goes away. But that one just sounds like a stroke patient that progressed and progressed regardless of the fact that all of the care and all of the stroke systems of care were in place and all of the resuscitative bundle was in place and she just got a lot worse. I don't know that there has to be another explanation. There might be something in there somewhere that... You'll love the neurosurgeons when I talked to him. Yeah. It was reperfusion because she did. So we go back and I scan her. I go and talk with the neurosurgeon and I said, but the angio suite's right next door. So I walk over and find him and say, gosh, she's not coming right now. We've had a bit of a change. I had to DSI her and get her scan and stuff. So he walked back to the scanner with me and he said, oh, she reperfused. That she probably reperfused and why she got so unstable. And I thought to myself, gosh, if she would have reperfused, doctor, doesn't that mean like she would wake up and move her right side? I, that's what I think of brain reperfusion, not cardiac or near cardiac arrest. So anyway, so we go back over and he decides, let's go ahead. We've got her back over here. Let's do a perfusion scan as well. And so we shot some dye and did a, did a CT perfusion scan. And uh, sadly for her, she remained hemodynamically stable on the ventilator, very stable, sedated and, and ventilated. Uh, but her 
her perfusion sh- scan showed the TPA had actually worked on the M1, believe it or not. Like, those are really big clots, big clot burden. It had worked, and she had reperfused a good portion of her territory, but she had dead brain, essentially. So not a good outcome, uh, not uh, what we wanted. Ultimately, he did not take her for endovascular retrieval twofold. She had already pretty much reperfused, and the brain tissue she had reperfused to looked non-viable to him. Yeah, so just the listeners out there who haven't been involved in endovascular therapy discussions that we have for the past several years, what Dr. Dixon means is that with a CT perfusion scan, they look at the perfusion to the area distal to the stroke. And if there is perfusion, that signal that that brain is still salvageable. If there is no perfusion to the distal brain, then it's dead and there's no benefit to revascularizing, even if you can. So that's a, that's a terrible story. Did you ever get better information? I want to ask two more questions and we'll wrap it up. Did you ever get better information on timeline and timing? And where were her risk factors? Where, why did she embolize? So that know? was, I, I didn't get any history of AFib or anything out of the daughter. And the timeline was pretty rock solid. I mean, the, the medics had it. She was right at 90 minutes when I got to her, Gosh. maybe. So she was well within the window. And so when the neurosurgeon and I were discussing it, I was perplexed. And you're, you're probably 100% right, Casey. I was overthinking it. She had a big stroke. She had a huge stroke. And that can you may not see all that on CT is like midline shift in the other case we were talking about. That's the most common thing that would cause that type of drastic change. Um, when I was speaking to the neurosurgeon about it, he called it malignant ischemia, which was, and I asked him to define, I said, well, what, what do you exactly mean by that? And he said that from her diabetes and other her comorbidities that she had such poor, um, secondary uh, perfusion that she just, you know, she had accelerated ischemia because she had such poor perfusion to begin with. So if she had no collaterals, uh, collaterals is the word I'm thinking. I'm sorry I was having a senior moment, but she didn't have any collaterals. And so I was like, gosh, we got a pretty good timeline. Her core infarct seemed really out of proportion with the timing. And he's like, nope, we see that with this malignant ischemia. She has so, such poor collateral circulation that once the brain, you know, once you have that big proximal lesion and the brain is without oxygen, there's no other vasculature uh, to kind of do an end around like the whole circle of Willis and these type of, uh, of collateral circulation. So, so take it to the other side. If that patient's a 59-year-old healthy uh, lady that jogs every day and has no diabetes or hypertension and she goes into atrial fibrillation a couple weeks before doesn't know it feels a little flutter in her chest but doesn't want to go to the doctor because she's healthy and she throws the same clot she has normal vasculature surrounding the lesion so she can collateralize and yes at least pick up some of the slack to buy her an extra 90 minutes or two hours to allow for endovascular retrieval yeah with the endovascular retrieval we won't you can listen to the casts on that. We've done a whole bunch of them. But at the end of the day, it's probably the most robust therapy that's come out. Uh, certainly, I'd say one of the most important in medicine and from our standpoint as emergency practitioners in my entire career uh, because it took a disease where, you know, TPA works a little bit, but it doesn't work that great. And every hour 
up to that three and a half hours you can give it, it works less and less well. And it certainly doesn't do well against a big clot burden. But the endovascular, the data is, is pretty robust across many studies at up to 24 hours. You know, one in, one in two and a half to one in three of these people walk away from this pretty pretty unscathed. Let's take it back to the medics and we'll wrap up. Yeah. The, the initial medic crew that brought the patient in, the discouraging piece for them and the discouraging piece for all medics, the discouraging piece for us as EM physicians is that that endovascular therapy, while robust and while life-changing for so many people, it's only useful for a small subset of a small subset of stroke patients. But we can't be shy about recognition and last known well timing, good exam, good history, because the medic crew had no idea whether or not she had brain amenable to EVT when they saw her in the home. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to Chevis so, and Dr. Decker. I can't remember the individual medic's name. Knocked it out of the park. Knocked out of the park. Great care, guys. The next one they have. So if you're listening out there, please send us a note. I apologize. I'm terrible with names, guys. The next one they have, though, may have a a core infarct that's amenable to endovascular therapy, and that patient will be walking around at Christmas time. Yeah, we got lots of those stories here. It's incredible. So. Well, those were two good cases. I don't feel too on the spotted. Those were excellent discussions. These are cases that we see all day every day here in Montgomery County and across the nation in EMS and I appreciate Dr. Dixon's reflection on his on his airway decision there I'd have made the same one and the same thing would have happened I think I'll file that one away for maybe adjacent wisdom and say I should probably make a little bit of of change there and not try to explain away the duck when it's quacking in my face and just go ahead and, and take care of business. So that was, that was a good, that was a good discussion as always. Uh, thanks for listening to the MCHD paramedic podcast. Leave us a like or a listen wherever you listen out there, five stars only. That's all we take here. If you have questions or ideas for podcasts, podcast at MCHD hyphen TX.org. Anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, that's perfect. Casey. Thanks for having me on and, and, going through walking through these cases with me it's great great insights great great learning lessons for us all as always thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back with a new episode again this podcast was brought to you by the montgomery county hospital district texas production and editing by andrew adams questions or comments which are always welcome can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.